Outsiders. That's the name of our title this morning. And we, uh, we begin to look at David for the summer. And David is an interesting character. He's probably, I believe he's the most uh, written about in the scriptures. And I, I love the stories of David. And just rereading them this week as I prepped, uh, I had a portion to look at. But I just wanted to just soak myself in again on the stories of David. And it's just so fascinating to me. So I want to encourage you, uh, some homework for you as you go home or during the summer. Uh, take some time and read through First and Second Samuel. And if you want to get even more daring, you can go and read through First and Second Chronicles as well. But start, start small. Start First and Second Samuel. Just read over the text of, of David's stories, and, and then that will, it will prepare you for uh, the different messages that people will be speaking throughout the summer. All right. So uh, exploring the stories of David, it's uh, it's not just simply about finding out these interesting tales and fun tales, although they certainly are at times very interesting and fun and uh, gory at times too. Like it's fascinating. If you open the scriptures, what is in there? Uh, the story of David, it's this imaginative story uh, from which the early Christian understanding of Jesus begins to emerge out of David. It's out of this story that it comes to unfold. So knowing the story of David and its place in the Hebrew tradition actually is vital for us understanding the story of Jesus and how it brings the larger story of the Bible into fulfillment. So I like um, what, uh, what's his name now? Forgetting his name. He, he uses this term, a beeline. You need to beeline. So uh, everything that we look in scripture ought to beeline to Jesus. So all roads lead to Rome. All things in life, all things in scripture ought to beeline, ought to lead to Jesus, right? So having that mentality as we look through David as well, having that thought that, okay, how is Jesus coming out of this? How is Jesus being focused in the story of David? I want to encourage you to do that as well. But before there were kings in Scripture, there were judges. Before the establishment of the Israeli monarchs ruled by family lineage, God's people had judges. So, Judges. These judges were leaders that rose up in times of crisis to rally the people and lead them through. So we see that in Judges chapter 2, verse 16 to 19, it gives this description that what God was doing was he was calling certain individuals to rise up and lead the people out of a crisis that was coming to being. So we have the judges, and uh, through these judges we have men like Othniel, or we have uh, the famous Ehud, the left-handed man. Who here is left-handed? See, the Bible hasn't forgotten about you. We have Ehud. He's left-handed. Then we have Shamgar. And we have uh, the famous Gideon and Samson. These are judges. And then we even have... How many women? We even have Deborah. We have Deborah who rises up in this time and leads the nation in the times of crisis. So... Here's the here's thing. The fact that even in ancient patriarchal society, a woman like Deborah was able to rise to the highest position in the land should have told them 
and by extension, us, as we read, that leadership is based on nothing. Leadership should not be based on just your name or your social designation. That was not a good idea to do that. But here, all of a sudden, we have Samuel. And Samuel, it says in chapter 8 of, of uh, 1 Samuel, that the judges are kind of come, He's the last judge. And in Samuel chapter 8, it says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges of Israel. So rather than waiting on God to make someone rise up, Samuel, he just decides, oh, they're my sons, so I should maybe appoint them as judges. But we, we read in Scripture that the names of his firstborn were Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So because of this, it says that the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations. So, Samuel goes and makes his sons the judges, and that doesn't work out quite well. So the elders of the community say, this isn't working. So maybe we should do something different. All the other nations around us, they have a king. Get us a king. And Samuel, he's wise and he tries to kind of encourage them out of this, but they decide they, they want a king. So they ask for a king, and this is kind of a silent rejection of the Lord as their king. Because up to this point, God was their king. He was the one that would raise up the next person when it was needed. He was the one that they were to depend upon. And now they're saying, we just want someone to lead us. So Samuel and the Lord... They warn the decision of what a king will look like. Samuel tells them, the king is going to take, 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 take. That's what he's going to do. He gives them all this warning, and the people, they still say, okay, can we have a king? So, the Lord and Samuel, they decide, all right, let's give them what they want. Let's give them a king. So, we come to chapter 9 of Samuel, and we have Saul. Our first king. Saul is anointed as first king. So it says in Samuel chapter 9, it says, There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish. Bless you. Son of Abiel. The son of Zeru. The son of Bekorah. The son of Athia. Anybody looking for names to name their children? It's a great list right here. Athnia of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul. An impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. A head taller than any of the others. A head taller than any of the others. So, here's a Benjamite. Kish, he comes from a wealthy family. This is where they start. He's a head taller than everyone else. So this sounds like a great way to choose a king, right? Rich, handsome, tall. Yet despite all these signs, we come to understand that although he starts well, or doesn't, actually doesn't start too well, although these signs point to us thinking maybe King uh, Saul's going to be a great king, he, he doesn't end up being a great king. And we can read through that. You can read through that at home because we don't have time today. But read through it and you'll see Saul. So he doesn't start well. He actually starts hiding in luggage. 
when they're trying to appoint him as king, he's hiding. So that's a great start to taking over as our starting is to reign as king, right? So read through Saul's stuff. So it doesn't start well. So we, you can read through that at home, and then all of a sudden we get to chapter 16, which is where we're going to start today. We're going to read through chapter 16 of Samuel, and this is where David comes in and his anointing. In chapter 9, it's God, he says this, he says, I regret allowing Saul to be made king. And then we come to chapter 16. So, I'll read through this and we'll talk a bit more about uh, David and what's happening. So if you want to follow along in chapter 16, this is where we will begin. So the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as a king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to become king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint from, for me the one I indicate. So right here we have this start. And it's interesting because Samuel, before this, what happens is Saul was supposed to, uh, the word of the Lord to Saul was to get rid of a certain people. And he was to destroy them all, not to leave one person. And instead he keeps, he listens to the people, they keep the livestock some of the good livestock. He doesn't kill the king, and he takes him as prisoner. So here we have Samuel. He comes up to Saul after this encounter, and you'll read this at home, right? Yeah, okay. So you'll read this at home. And uh, I believe it's King Agag. And uh, Samuel comes and sees that he doesn't do what he was supposed to do. And here's strong, we think, you know, Samuel's a prophet. We think it's just like this white-bearded man with a cane, and he's, he's just not doing much. But he gets there, and he's furious. And he grabs the king and kills him himself. And now, all of a sudden, a few chapters later, here's Samuel afraid. Because he's told Saul, you've been rejected. And he hasn't seen Saul anymore. So he goes off to Ramah. And now God says to him, stop warning. I have a plan. And I want you to go. So he says to God, he says, but God, like, this isn't, this isn't right. There's a king, and you want me to go anoint another king. So, Already, this is kind of interesting. I like what Walter Brueggemann says. He says, This may not be a blatant lie authorized by Yahweh, for Samuel does take an animal for the occasion. But this is clearly, I love this right here, an authorized deception. (laughs) Here Yahweh is very close to falsehood for the sake of David. It's interesting to start here for David. Like, God's telling him, Take an animal with you and just go and sacrifice. So Samuel listens and he goes and he comes to the house of Jesse and he starts with uh, entering the town. So we'll, we'll continue. So Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived in Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? So the elders see Samuel coming and they, they know he's the king maker and he's the king breaker. He just killed Agag. So what's he coming here to do? Is he coming here to start 
a coup? Is he coming here to punish us because maybe we haven't been listening to God and doing what's right? So they're, they're a bit afraid. And, and he just kind of eases it up and says, I've come here to sacrifice. So let's sacrifice. Let's, let's throw a party. And then he invites uh, Jesse and his kids. Samuel replies, yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Eliab's the first son. And, of course, Samuel is still... He still hasn't got it. Like he's, He sees Eliab, the firstborn, and Eliab is tall, strong, and big, and he thinks, This has got to be the guy, right? Because... This is what we look for in a leader. And the Lord says to him, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. We already messed up with Saul and his height and his appearance. And people that are vertically challenged like me say, Hey, man, don't worry about the height. Being tall is not, it's not that great. So, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is a famous passage, right? We've all heard this before. God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. So Eliab, he's attractive, and Samuel's drawn to him. But Yahweh speaks directly to Samuel, and he warns him, Don't be attracted by the physical appearance. This is not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the right heart. The reference to height is kind of in that reference of, look, Samuel, or Saul, he, he had the height. It didn't work. This is, the, this is going to be different. I, I need to do something different here. I'm looking at the heart. Yahweh wants, this is what Grugerman says, Yahweh, want, want, Yahweh needs, wants, and will have a king with a rightly committed heart. We don't know anything about Eliab other than this language. The Lord has rejected him. And some of us can think, being tall, dark, handsome, and muscular is a bad thing as we read this, but it's not. So those of you who are tall, it's okay to be tall. God has not rejected you because you are tall. But Eliab, and what you're looking for in this sense of this leadership, the point here is Eliab fits the mold. He fits the mold of what a leader is supposed to look like. But God has rejected that filter. That filter of what we think, this is what you know, I think a leader should look like. This is what I think a calling of someone who's called by God to do something great, they look like this. And this is the filter that they have, and even Samuel still has this filter, this uh, criteria. And God is saying, we, we, we made the mistake on the first choice by using this criteria, and it's not happening again. I'm not going to do that. My way of seeing things is not like yours. I see the very center of things. So the translation of heart in the Hebrew word is levav. And levav means inner man, mind, will, heart, soul, understanding. We see this in the New Testament where Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your, he references Deuteronomy, with all your mind, your heart, your strength. Your, so this is, this is the similar. He's saying that the innermost part of us, love God with all of that, the heart, that's what God looks at. He's not looking at the outward appearance. He's looking at that. That makes sense? That inner, everything about us. 
that we ought to worship God with that, and that's what God's looking at. He's looking at that. Love the Lord your God with all of that. So God's not looking at how strong you are. He's not looking at how smart you are. He's not looking at how gifted you are. He's looking at this innermost being of who you are. And Jesus plays with this in the New Testament, right? He says, you've heard it said that thou shall not murder. But I tell you that if you despise someone in your heart, that you have done it already. Do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've done it in your heart, that you've done it already. So Jesus is he's, he's teaching us that this is what is important. This is what God desires, is the innermost part of you. How is that in relation and relationship to God? How is that how you worship? Later, Jesus meets a woman at a well, and they have this conversation, and he speaks to her of this truth. And he says to her, it's not about a physical thing of where you worship, but what God is looking for is worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And here's the thing. Before David was king, before David was warrior, he was He was a worshiper. As a shepherd, he was a worshiper that sat there with the sheep and worshiped God. God is looking for kings and rulers. He's looking for worshipers. He's looking for that. So we continue. Eliab's the first. He's passed over. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? It's interesting here because if you look into the Hebrew traditions, there's actually a very interesting numerical significance with numbers. So here, if they're reading, they know that the number seven is common for perfection, completion. It's also referenced at times as the number of God. So they're reading this and they're thinking, maybe they're thinking, okay, a couple of them have come through, not nothing yet. But the seventh son, this is probably where the story is going to unfold, right? The seventh son is going to be the completion. It's going to be the one that marks the new king that's coming. And all of a sudden we have seven sons come through and nothing. So them reading it is different than what we're reading. They're reading it and saying, wait a minute, the seventh has come through. This is their filter as well, right? This is their filter and how they're seeing. The box is normally seven. The box is normally this way. Where's the seventh one? And he's not there. So we keep reading and it says... There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. This, is, this, is, make, this, this makes me laugh. Because remember what God said to him. He said, don't look at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart, right? And here's the narrator as he's telling us the story. Look what it says. It says, so he sent for him and brought him, and he was ruddy. 
with fine appearances and handsome features. They're still caught up in the outward appearance. Because aren't we all? Even God tells, when God tells us, don't worry about the filter of leadership, or don't worry about the filter of calling, of gifts, of what I think is precious or not, we have this stigma of what we think we ought to look like when we look in the mirror. We have this society that says, this is what perfection is, this is what good looking is, this is what is attractive, this is what isn't attractive. And God is saying, stop putting those goggles on, those glasses on, and start looking at it the way I look. And yet Samuel still is saying, the narrator is still saying, yes, this is the person God's choosing because he's looked at David's heart, but he's still ruddy, he's still good looking, he still has a nice appearance. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, it's just funny. So here we go. So he, so Samuel took the horn of oil. Oh, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel then went to Ramah. So the placement of David as the eighth son it's signaling something. It's God's choice in this story is an actual, David is an actual and honest outsider. He's an outsider. He doesn't even fit in the mold. He's the eighth son. He's the outsider. He comes from the outside bounds of the expected story. He's the one who will not play to type. He's the one the father didn't even think to call in from the field for the ceremony. And what's interesting here is if you if you go over to First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 15, I want to show you something. First Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 15. This is a detailed description of the sons and the genealogies of Israel's sons. And it says in chapter uh, 2, verse 15, it says... Am I in the right one? 215. Uh-oh. Did I mess did I mess up? Okay, yeah, sorry. Uh, so it's giving it's giving Jesse was the father of Eliab, his firstborn, the second son was Abinadab, the third Shemya, the fourth Nathaniel, the fifth Radai, the sixth Ozum, and the seventh. David. The seventh David. The chronicle. The chronicler. The one who is trying to chronicle the things. He misses the point. He's trying to chronicle the memorial of David, the great king. The one who was our king, the greatest king that we had. And he misses the point. Of David being the eighth son. He has to put him in that place of perfection. He has to put him in that place of the seventh son. He has to put him in that place of he was perfect and completion was happening with this king. And he misses, he glosses over. The story of David is not about the king we wanted, not the king we expected. This is about a God who uses people who don't fit the mold to break the mold. And fast forward. Fast forward over to Luke. 
During the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel of Gabriel from God's presence to an unmarried girl, he was sent to an unmarried girl named Mary, living in Nazareth, a village in Galilee. She was engaged to a man named Joseph, a true descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Grace to you, young woman, for the Lord is with you, and so you are anointed with great favor. You fast forward, and here's a girl who's not even married yet, and she becomes the one who brings in the Messiah. And you fast forward and look at Jesus, and they say about Jesus, who's this guy that comes from Nazareth? You read in Isaiah in 53 in the description that says that he was unrooted, and he was not of great appearance. And then you come over to 1 Corinthians, and I love what this this is God's calling to us, and, and Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, consider who you were when God called you to salvation. Not many of you were wise scholars by human standards. That's me. Nor were you, many of you in positions of power. Not many of you were considered the elite when you answered God's call. But God chose those whom the world considered foolish to shame those who would think they are wise, and God chose the punny and powerless to shame the high and mighty. He chose the lowly and laughable in the world's eyes, nobodies, so that he would shame the somebodies. For he chose what is regarded as insignificant in order to supersede what is regarded as prominent, so that there would be no place for prideful boasting in God's presence. For it is not from man that we, are, we draw our life, but from God, as we are being joined to Jesus, the Anointed One. And now he is our God-given wisdom, our virtue, our holiness, and our redemption. It's interesting, as we start and let this story of David unfold, he didn't have the best upbringing, it seems like. His parents left him as that outsider. He wasn't even counted on to come in and and be part of the ceremony. But there's one thing that his parents did get right. I talked last week, I spoke last week about names and the significance of names and how God names us. Sometimes we need to go home and ask God, name me again. Rename. Well, they got David's name right, because do you know what David's name means? It means beloved. They did get one thing right. God took that beloved and rooted him in that identity. David was rooted in the identity of being loved by his father in heaven, maybe not by his earthly father, but by that father. And out of that, he identified himself. And yes, he had his failures. We see those, and we'll look at those. But he had one thing. He had a heart after God. A heart of a worshiper that came after God. David transcended his place as a worshiper. It's interesting if you go to Acts 15, it says that God desires to restore the tabernacle of David. Do you know what the tabernacle of David was? David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. And he has no place to put it. There is no temple yet. So he sets up his own tabernacle. And it's simply a couple tent pegs with a covering. But he says, here is where the ark, the presence of God is. And we will worship here day and night. And he sets up worship 24-7. So much so that later in the New Testament, God says, that's the one that I really want. 
that one where worship was just there, the heart of worship was there. It wasn't the, it wasn't the beautiful temple of Solomon that God refers to. It's the tabernacle of David. The worshiper's heart is what God desires for us. So this morning, as we begin this journey of David, I want you to hear, beloved for yourself. I want you to hear that it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter if you're young, if you're old, if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're what the Bible refers to, Greek or Jew. It doesn't matter if you're Portuguese. God calls you beloved and says, I have gifted you, I have called you to do amazing and wonderful things. Will you answer that call this morning? Will you stand up and not apologize, but say, I will, because he has named me and called me his God. Amen.